Bibles to Mark chapter 8. We come to that time of the year called Advent where for the next few weeks we're working our way in expectation to the day of Jesus' birth. And uh, every time I come to this time of the year, I say, what am I going to preach on? And uh, it's pretty much decided for me what I have to preach on, and that's the birth of Jesus, which can become, for many, a little stale. I don't know why it gets stale, because it's miraculous and marvelous. Um, But how do you do it in a way where people will hear it and receive it and understand it in a new way? And um, as we were talking and praying through what it would look like at Advent, I realized I would be coming to Mark chapter 8 and Mark chapter 9 in our study through the book of Mark. And I just decided in that moment that we were going to stay in the book of Mark. This isn't a story of Jesus' birth, but it is definitely a story of expectation. And when we're talking about Advent, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about expectation. We as New Testament believers now are expecting Jesus to return. But in the Old Testament and in Jesus' days and leading up to Jesus' life, they were expecting a Messiah to come. They were expecting the Christ to come. They were expecting a promised one to come. And Jesus would be the fulfillment of all of that. And we don't want to miss that. We don't want to miss that He is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. That when God promised a Redeemer, Jesus fulfills that. When God promised a Deliverer, Jesus fulfills that. When God promised redemption from sin... Jesus fulfills that. And we don't want to miss that today. But we also don't want to come to Jesus with our expectations and with our ideas of what he should look like and how he should be. Because when we do that, we'll also come with our expectations and our ideas of how we should live in light of who he is. And I want to make sure that we as the people of God come to God's word with the right mentality, and that is to glean from it, not to read into it. That we wouldn't come with expectations of who Jesus is that would fall short, but instead that we would know who he is. He asks two questions in the passage we're going to look at today. Who do people say that I am and who do you say that I am? My prayer is that today there would not be a person who would leave here who would not ask the question, who do I say Jesus is that over the next few weeks, we would ask ourselves repeatedly, who is Jesus? Who do we say he is and how does that affect our everyday life? How does that affect my witness? How does that affect my family? How does that affect my work? How does that affect the way I relate to the people around me? And so in Mark chapter eight, verses 27 through 30, if you'll turn in your copy of God's word and follow along, the word of the Lord says this. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist and others say Elijah and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. We see Jesus doing that often, strictly charging people not to talk about him or to tell people that he is the Christ. It's not time for that confrontation to happen yet. Instead, the confrontation with Peter and with his disciples needs to happen because up to this point, Peter and the disciples haven't been the brightest people. They haven't been the sharpest tools. They aren't the people who seem to get that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ. In fact, they've watched him do everything from heal lepers to forgive sins, to feed 5,000 people, to walk on water, to then feed 4,000 people. Then they've watched him do all of this, and yet they consistently miss that he is the Christ. 
In fact, in just the previous chapters, what we've seen is as he feeds 5,000 people, then he feeds 4,000 people. It actually says they did not understand about the loaves. They didn't get it. They looked at Jesus. They saw all of his power. They heard his message and they didn't get that the king was among them, that the Messiah was here, that the anointed one of God was among them. They were still waiting to see what he would reveal. But in this moment, Jesus is more concerned with a confrontation with Peter and the disciples over who they say he is than he is with the religious elite who will one day send him to his death. You see, so in verse 30, when he says, don't tell anyone, he's not ready for the confrontation at that point with the religious elite. He's not ready at that point to go to his death, but he's going to be setting his sights on Calvary, setting his sights on the cross from this point on. It's an interesting setting that he chooses for this really important episode in his ministry. Caesarea Philippi is the region. And this is a place that really was a, a center of paganism and a center of godlessness, a center of idolatry, where people were worshiping false gods left and right. It really is a place that's totally opposed to all that Jesus stood for, totally opposed to the Hebrew faith, totally opposed to the kingdom of God. But Jesus chooses this place, a place outside of the religious, outside of the acceptable, as the place where he would call on his disciples to declare who he is. And from that point on, we see this as a turning point in the book of Mark. Up until this point, it's, the book of Mark has been showing us the kingdom message and miracles, showing us the power of Jesus to bring his kingdom from heaven to earth. But from this point on, there's going to be an active pursuit of walking to the cross, a beeline for the cross, because at the cross, he will actually institute his kingdom and bring people into the kingdom through his death and his spilt blood. So this is a huge turning point in the book. And I want us to pay attention because in the following verses, we're going to see a call on our lives that if we're going to stand with Peter and declare you are the Christ, it's got to change the way we live. It's got to change everything about the way we follow Jesus. So at the heart of all of this, at this hinge point of the book of Mark, there's a question for each of us. Who is Jesus? Who is he? Who do you say that he is? He, he really couches this in two questions, two important questions, essential questions. And I want us to just dive into those two questions. Jesus goes to Caesarea Philippi, a little away time with his disciples, a little private teaching time with his disciples. And as he's there, he looks at them and says, who do people say that I am? It's an important concept to understand that people who had come in contact with Jesus had all formed an opinion of Jesus. Isn't that the truth, though, that everyone who comes in contact with Jesus cannot avoid forming some sort of an opinion of Jesus. You're going to form an opinion of what you think about Jesus when you come in contact with him. He is like a fork in the road. You're going to have to make a decision. And when you come to Jesus, when you're in front of Jesus, when you encounter Jesus, you're going to make a decision about who he is. So he asks, who do people say that I am? And all of the disciples seem to have an answer. They all chime in. They all come back with different ideas that people around them, people that had heard him speak, people that had seen his miracles, all of the ideas. The first is this, John the Baptist. As they chime in, they want to show, here's what people think. They say, 
Some people say you're John the Baptist. This is not a new concept in the book of Mark. Just a few chapters ago, we saw that Herod, who was the one that lopped off John the Baptist's head, actually was scared when it came to meeting Jesus. He wanted to meet Jesus, but he was more afraid of Jesus because he was afraid that Jesus was actually John the Baptist come back from the dead, that Jesus was coming to get him because he was John the Baptist reincarnated. So Herod evidently was not the only person who thought this. They looked at John the Baptist's ministry and they saw Jesus' ministry and they said, oh, he must just be a reincarnated version of John the Baptist, that he is John the Baptist come back from the dead. But what is it about John the Baptist? What you, he was a person with a powerful message and a person with really an attractive message to the people who were kind of the down and outs, the outcasts, because his message would look at the religious elite and call them a brood of vipers. His message would look at the people who had everything pristine on the outside but were dark on the inside, and he would look at them and he would call them to task on it. He was constantly calling the religious elite to repent. He was calling all people to the same response that they needed to repent. And so he made an equal playing field for people. And so he became an attractive person for people. And so when Jesus comes in and he begins to reach out to the outcast, and when he begins to serve the poor, and when he begins to love the abandoned, they begin to draw this conclusion. Maybe he is John the Baptist back from the dead. What's the second? The second is Elijah. Others say Elijah. In Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 through 6, the word of the Lord given to Malachi promises a prophet like Elijah, that Elijah would come and make straight the way of the Lord and actually lead into the day of the Lord. Malachi 4, 5 through 6 says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. For some, when they saw Jesus, they saw this promised Elijah, the one who was setting the stage for God to show up, the one who was setting the stage for the day of the Lord. And when we think of the day of the Lord today, we may have not have quite the idea they had about the day of the Lord. When we think of the day of the Lord, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Sunday, right? It's the day of the Lord today, right? This is a great day. We get to gather in the church. We get to sing songs. We get to hear this guy talk for a little while. It's a great day, right? The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord in the Old Testament was not usually a positive day. It was a positive day for those who believed and were purified by God, but it was not a positive day for the rest of us. It was not a positive day for the majority of the world. The day of the Lord was usually through a great battle, but it was always when God showed up and he brought justice and judgment to the world. So what they're waiting for is God's justice and judgment to show up. And maybe Jesus is the one who's going to finally prepare the way for the Romans to be out of here. Finally get rid of all those people who are oppressing us. Finally get rid of everything that just crowds us in and lords over us. Jesus is a, an Elijah who would prepare the way for the day of the Lord. He goes on. Who else? Seems like there's tons of ideas about who Jesus is. One of the prophets. Others say one of the prophets. For some people, he was simply a prophet. He was one who spoke the word of the Lord, a messenger of the Lord. The one who would, after nearly 500 years, come and actually begin to speak the word of the Lord back to the people. To take them out of this time of famine from God's word and bring them back to God's word. He was 
He was like a breath of fresh air. And yet, as we know about most of the prophets in the Old Testament, he would be rejected. But he was just like a prophet. Deuteronomy 18.18, Moses promises the people of God that I will raise up for them. This is what God says. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Maybe this is the promise of Moses. Maybe that's who Jesus is. Really, at the heart of all of these ideas about who Jesus is, there's a shadow of truth, right? I mean, he is someone who comes in and he cares for the oppressed. He does call the religious elite to to task on their unrighteousness. He is one who will overthrow governments at his birth. When he goes for his circumcision, he will be the rise and fall of many. So there's a lot of truth to these things. And yet, really, each of these ideas about Jesus is just a shadow of who he really is, of who he actually is. And it is not enough to simply get a part of the question, a part of the answer right. It is not enough to only get an 80%. It is not enough. We're not looking for what percentage of who Jesus is we get correct. This is pass-fail here. Okay, This is 100% or nothing. You are getting an A in a passing grade or you are failing this answer. Who do people say that I am? They are missing the truth of who Jesus is. Now, the reality is that they had, he had the attention of all the people. The, the people realized he was important. The people were even enamored with him and wanted to be around him. The crowds would come out and listen to him, but they weren't embracing who he really is. Their estimation of Jesus was falling short. And I want to challenge us. I want to, I want to caution us as as believers today, if you are a believer in Jesus and your life has not been changed by following Jesus, then your estimation of who Jesus is may be wrong. If Jesus can come into your life and simply meet one need and not actually transform you, your estimation of who he is is probably completely off. You may have accepted a shadow of who Jesus is without understanding who he really is. Because it is not enough to accept Jesus for his powerful message and his proclaiming truth and his going after the elite and making the playing field level. It's not enough to accept Jesus for his powerful message without acknowledging him as the all-powerful one who is Lord. There are tons of people who want Jesus to come and save them from something. There are far fewer people who actually want Jesus to Lord over them. And so when he comes onto the scene, it's not just that he's leveling the playing field. He's setting himself up as king. And his kingdom will be him as king. It is not enough to embrace Jesus as the one who ushers in the kingdom without embracing Jesus as the king. Savior and Lord. So how does this apply today? Today, who do people say Jesus is? How often do people retool the message and the person of Jesus in order to meet their own expectations or their own ideas or their own desires for who they want Him to be? 
right? It's, it's a really good thing, especially in America, to be able to call yourself a Christian and then kind of make Jesus into someone that everyone can handle and he's a little more palpable for everyone, right? He's a little more palatable, something that people can actually handle. This is the reality of what people do with Jesus. So let me give you a couple of examples. He's a good teacher. He's a good teacher who stood for social justice. Like he came in and he, he made sure that the outcasts, that the orphans were taken care of. He brought the children to him. He was a good teacher who stood for social justice. And that's true. But if that's all Jesus is to you, if that shadow of Jesus is all you embrace about Jesus, then more than likely you're going to begin to see social justice as the only notion of what Christianity is all about. Right? It is important that we help people. Christians serve. That's what we do, right? That's something we're supposed to do. But that's not all it is to be a follower of Jesus. So if we are meeting needs but not meeting eternal needs, if we're feeding hungry children in China without feeding their souls with the gospel, we're sending hungry non-hungry children in China to hell. You understand? Christianity is about serving, but it's about eternal needs as well. And if we make Jesus just a social justice guru, then social justice is all we're going to care about. Some say he's a good man who taught what love is by accepting everyone. And it's true. God is love. And Jesus, Jesus as he walked around on this planet, is love incarnate. And yet his love was full of grace and truth. And our notion of love does not add up to God's notion of love. But if we make Jesus only the one who teaches that love is accepting everyone, here's what happens. All notions of love become acceptable. So we live in a world that people go, well, how can you say that that's wrong if it's love and God is love? And I can say because your notion of love is not God's notion of love. But if we simply take Jesus as a shadow, the one who only taught that love is accepting everyone, then we may miss Jesus as a whole. Some would say that he's an important figure only in so much as he's a historical figure. And as a historical figure, as people have placed their faith in him and as Western civilization has been formed around him, that's really the only importance he has. That today, it doesn't matter who Jesus was and what he did. But instead today, it's really about what we're doing, not about him. Jesus is the historical figure. Jesus is the center of Western civilization. It's true, but that's simply a shadow of who he really is. No one comes in contact with Jesus without forming an opinion of him. But ultimately, the mark of being a follower of Jesus and a citizen of his kingdom will come down to the second question Jesus asks. So the first question is, who do people say that I am? The second question is essential for all of us who would call ourselves followers of Jesus. Look back at the text. Verse 29, and he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Immediately there, but, he knows the answer has to be different than what other people say, right? But who do you say that I am? And Peter chimes in, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. This declaration is earth shattering. This declaration changes Peter. It doesn't change Jesus. It changes Peter. 
From this point on, in fact, in, in Matthew's Gospel and other places, we see that Simon becomes Peter in this moment. He's going to be changed by this declaration. He's going to be changed by Jesus when he declares, you are the Christ. The Gospel of Mark has already declared this truth several times in various ways. Peter's not the first one to declare this. He won't be the last one to declare this in the Gospel of Mark. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 1, Mark himself says Jesus Christ, the Son of God, declares this truth about Jesus. God the Father says in chapter 1, verse 11, You are my beloved Son. Even the demons get it right. The demons get it right in several places. In chapter 1, verse 24, He's the Holy One of God. Chapter 3, verse 11, He's the Son of God. Chapter 5, verse 7, He's the Son of the Most High God. The declaration that Jesus is God, the declaration that Jesus is the Anointed One, is, an, is not a new declaration, but it is new when it comes to Peter, and it's going to change him. So Peter adds his voice to the truth of who Jesus is by saying, You are the Christ. This is such a momentous occasion that in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, this is what happens. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He's going to go on to tell him that upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is such an important moment in the ministry of Jesus that the entire reason for his ministry is going to hinge on this declaration and how it changes people. And every single one of us, if we are going to be a follower of Christ, has to be willing in this world to make this declaration, to proclaim that he is the Christ. So it is important that we understand what these words mean, what we are saying when we say you are the Christ. When Peter says you are the Christ, let's just look at the words. First of all, he says you are. It's interesting how Jesus and his father will say, I am. And when they say, I am, it is a name. It is something they are claiming. They are claiming that all of reality centers on them. They are claiming that they have been, are, and always will be. They are claiming as their name, the name that is above every name. And so for Peter to look at Jesus and say, you are, there is a surety to what he is saying. He is assured that Jesus is his security that there is none other. So when he looks at Jesus and says, you are the Christ, he's not waiting for another one. All of his hope is found in Jesus. He's not looking for another king. He's not looking for another Messiah. He's not looking for anyone else. He has found the Messiah, and his name is Jesus. Now, let me make this clear. What Peter is actually saying here is much more than just, you are the Christ, what he is declaring is that all of the promises of God have found their fulfillment in you, Jesus. That's what it means for Jesus to be the Christ, for there to be no one else that they are waiting for. The entire hope of the people of God and the people of Israel had been that a deliverer and a Messiah was coming, and now he's standing in front of Jesus. He's now standing there in front of Jesus, and he looks at him and he goes, I believe you're the one. You are the one. I'm not waiting for anyone else. I don't think you're Elijah. I don't think that you're John the Baptist. I don't think you're a prophet. I think you're the one. I believe you are the one. And I ask you, in our lives, are we waiting for something else? Or do we realize that Jesus is enough? We don't get something else. 
The father's not up there with like cards up his sleeve. Just if you say the right thing, I'll play this card for you. If you'll pray the right prayer, I'll play this card for you and you'll get something new and something better. He's given us Jesus. We don't have to wait for anyone else and for any other king. But he goes on and he says, not just you are, but he says, you are the Christ. And just to clarify, this is not Jesus' last name. Okay, so People have wondered that. What was his name? Jesus Christ. Christ is a title. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the promised one. He is the one that they have been waiting for. That all the way back in the garden, when there would be one who would crush the serpent's head, this is the one who has come to crush the serpent's head. That the throne of David would never end. This is the one who will perpetually rule and reign. This is the one that's been promised, the one who will keep the promises, the one who fulfills the promises. Unlike Jesus changing Simon's name to Peter, Peter isn't giving Jesus another name. Let me put it this way. By Peter looking at Jesus and saying, you are the Christ, he wasn't making Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Christ. So for us to say, I want to make you Lord, doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? For us to declare that you are Lord makes more sense. Because he's Lord whether you believe it or not. Right? He is the Christ, whether Peter was going to believe it or not. But Jesus wants to confront Peter's disbelief up to that point and put him in a place where he has to find all of his hope in Jesus. And so he says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You're the one. This declaration shatters every other concept of what it means to follow after a leader. He's saying... At this point, we were, we were trusting kings. We've been trusting governments. We've been trusting religious leaders. We've been trusting whoever you had sent. We've been waiting for new prophets. But now we have you. And you're the fulfillment for me. And if we as the people of God want to understand what it is to live as the people of God, we're going to have to come back to this place where we say there is none other than Jesus. He's enough. I don't need to trust governments. I don't need to trust religious leaders. I need to trust Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. This reality, when people embrace it, that Jesus is enough and that He is King and that He is the one sent by God and that He is the promise fulfilled and that He is the Redeemer and that He is our everything, this will shatter nations. This will bring down governments. It has. This will establish nations. It will establish governments. This will change the world. It will destroy man-made religion. It will take entire denominations and run them over when people will come and declare Jesus Christ is Lord. Because when we do that, we find that Jesus is full of power. And we find that Jesus is full of authority. We find that Jesus is full of everything that we need. We find that all of our expectations were wrong and He's better. Let me say that again. We find that all of our expectations about who the Messiah is supposed to be were wrong. He's better than all of our expectations. He's more powerful. He's more glorious. So all of our notions of who He's supposed to be will have to fly out of the window when we come face to face 
with him. Up to this point, Jesus has been revealing himself through his message and his miracles. The disciples don't seem to get it up to this point. But now there's a turning point. He's been revealing it in stages, much like when he touched the blind man one time and he could see, but he couldn't see clearly. And he touched him again and he could see clearly. Now the disciples are seeing clearly. Up to this point, they haven't been seeing clearly, but he reveals the true nature of who he is. And from this point on, he's going to be revealing the true nature of his mission, that he has come to go to the cross to purchase people for his kingdom. He hasn't come to set up a throne on earth at this point. He has come to go to the cross. This is going to change what it is to follow after him. This is going to change what people were expecting of him. And some are going to run away. It's going to cause many to stray. It's going to cause his disciples to despair. It's going to cause people to run away. But when we embrace him as the Christ, we also have to embrace his way. When we embrace him as Lord, when we embrace him as the Christ, as the Messiah, we also have to embrace his design. And when we do that, we have to ask these questions. Who do we say that he is? Because if he is the Christ, if we do say he's the Christ, if he is the Messiah, if he is the Lord of Lords, if he is who he says he is, And he's also God in flesh, according to John 1. He's also God dwelling among us, Emmanuel. He's the one with all authority, Matthew 28. He's the name above all names, Philippians 2. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the Almighty, Revelation 1. See, when we declare he's the Christ, we have to declare that he's all these things too. Because he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. And if we're going to declare Him as Messiah, we have to declare Him as the way. See, it's not enough to declare the truth of who Jesus is. Declaration is necessary. In fact, we're told that if you don't declare, then He's not going to declare you as His when He's before His Father. So declaration is necessary, but it's not enough. I mean, even the demons were declaring the truth of who Jesus is. The demons were not tight-lipped about this. They were going to say, right, he's the Son of God. So to declare it isn't enough. But a declaration in faith will determine our allegiance. So when Peter says, you're the Christ, the way Jesus will teach him and train him and cause him to follow from that point on will even cost Peter his life. See, a true declaration in faith will determine our allegiance and the whole direction of our life. Because declaration must carry with it allegiance to the truth of who He is. Which means we have to be willing to submit to His plans no matter if we like them or not. We have to surrender to following Him no matter how difficult it gets. We have to sacrifice even our position on earth sometimes in order to gain position in heaven. But more than anything, we have to set our hearts and our minds on His ways, not on our own. If you want to know this Christmas season, this Advent season, what would be most fruitful for you? Set your heart on things that are above, where Christ is. Not on things that are below. 
Store up for yourself treasures in heaven. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Declare you are the Christ. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, today is a day where he comes and he says, you're going to have an opinion of me after today. After today, I'm either going to be a good man, a prophet, something to you, but you're going to have an opinion. And I ask you, what do you expect Jesus to be? Do you expect him to fit into your box of what you think he should be or what you want him to be? Or do you expect him to do something so powerful because he is the redeemer and the king, because he is God in flesh? If we know him as God, can't we expect him to do something far greater than we could ever imagine? Yeah? If we know him as God, shouldn't we expect him to do something far greater than we can ever imagine? So why do we keep trying to come to Jesus and make him fit into our idea of what it should look like? Today, if you're a follower of Jesus, I would ask you, will you declare to Jesus, you are the Christ, which means you are my king, which means you're enough for me. I don't need anyone else. I'm not waiting for anything else. I'm not looking for anything else. I find everything I need in you. Because when you do, that will change everything. Let's pray. Father, I pray that today we would declare that Jesus is the Christ, that He is our everything, that our expectation would be for You to do above and beyond what we could ever imagine. And may we live in that expectation, longing for the day when Jesus returns. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close, we're going to stand together. We're going to sing a hymn of response.